everyone. I'm your host, April Hanna, and this is the Path 11 Podcast. Just a reminder, we are offering access to all of our archive shows, which is well over 100 hours of content, and new bonus shows such as the Virtual Book Club, Food for Thought Friday, and the Two Minute Tuesday, all for just $3.99 a month. Think about it, guys. That's less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte at Starbucks. Sign up for premium for just $3.99 a month. Now let's get to this week's show. Today, I am joined with Hay House author Anne Rube, and we are going to be uh, discussing her book, Be, Feel, Think, and Do. Anne is a spiritual coach and public speaker who explores her journey of learning how to prioritize being and feeling in order to experience life richly, fully, and true to her soul's calling. At the age of 23, Anne's life was interrupted by a near-fatal car accident and mystical experience. Trapped in the car, unable to breathe, she had a vision that forever realigned her life's trajectory. The following years were marked by chronic pain, emotional turmoil, and malaise through which her journey of introspection and personal transformation would eventually lead to profound insights around self-healing, inner peace, and soul realization. Anne opens her heart and her mind to the universe's wisdom, providing guidance and comfort to those who feel at the precipity of change and awakening. Anne, welcome to our show. Thank you, April. I'm so happy to be here. Happy to be here, too. And uh, I have to say, just on a side note, I love the way that your book looks and feels. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, it tricked me when it came because it just it has this beautiful cover and I it tricks you to think that it's going to be very much in like a journal form. I don't, I don't know for some reason, but it reminded me of that, but it's absolutely gorgeous and I love it. So I just had to say that. Oh, thank you. I was really happy when I saw the cover as well, because the Hay House, um, they did it, you know, they, they ask a few questions about the kinds of cover that you like, but you know, I, you don't have a lot to say. And so I was a little nervous and when it popped off, I loved it. I would buy that book too. <laughs> yes. Yes. They did a good job. Good job. Hey house. Yes. <laughs> All right. So I know, um, most of the times people usually like to start off with your story and I would like to, um, have you speak about the car accident. Obviously it was a very pivotal moment mm -hmm. in your life, but before we do that, I actually wanted to jump to chapter 20, which kind of gets into the title of the book. And I had an interesting experience as I was reading the book and I came to this chapter because to be honest, you know, I, I knew what the book's title was, but I didn't really give it all that much thought. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, as I was reading through it, it was like, okay, that's the title of the book. And when I got to chapter 20, um, you had the words rearranged in a different way. It was, uh, you know, the, these are the four things that we do every day, do think, feel, and be. And I was like, yeah, we do do all those four things. And I was sitting reading that, you know, the way that they were organized and intuitively I was like, gosh, well, it would be a lot better if we would be feel, think, and then do. And then I started <laughs> laughing and I'm like, oh yeah, now I get it. That's the title of the book. And then you go in to explain how our process of this Amazing. is a little bit wrong. So it was just a funny moment for me because, you know, I just kind of got wrapped up and I'm rearranging the words. And I was thinking about this would be a great way to wake up in the morning. If mm. you just wake up and you allow yourself to be, you feel yourself in your body, mm. then you move to think about what you're going to do and then actually get up and go. 
Exactly. So I was I was hoping that you can tie your story in uh, with with the these four things that we do every day and how you came to um, come up with that sweet yes. formula. Oh, amazing. I love how you kind of intuitively knew that this was a good way of interacting with your moment to moment and your days. Um, and the, you know, the, this progression I feel is innate. Like we know this innately that home is in this being and this being aware of where I'm at right now and what's going on inside my energetic being. And I know for some people that's abstract, but even just feeling the sensations of the air coming in and out of our lungs or feeling the sensation of the blood rushing through my right hand or something like that, just to bring us home, to bring us here in this moment. And then from that place, thinking and doing have a different meaning because they are more creative and more insightful and different than maybe repeating over and over the same habits and um, thought processes that just don't serve us anymore. And I definitely was living um, a do, think, feel, be, I would say do, think, do, think, do, think, do, think kind of <laughs> life <laughs> for the longest time. Well, you know, I, 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 in the book, I, I talk about the car accident, which was a very pivotal moment in my life. It stayed with me very strongly, but my life changed over the course of 10, 10 years after that drastically. So it wasn't instantly that this way of being, came into my life. So it wasn't, I had the car accident and then now I was a new person. No, not at all. So that's what the book is about is that I explain the journey and describe this experience of, of, um, trying and, and trying different things and, and remembering who you are and then forgetting and sometimes forgetting for a couple of years. And that's okay. Like just knowing that it's a journey, it's not a destination right away. And it's not a place where we should be. It's, it's um, learning um, how to merge our self that we show to the world and that we are on a daily basis and our highest self, our soul, our true unique signature to have one, one existence, one, one, one reality and one person, really. One, and, and I think I know a lot of people who... Um, listen to this podcast or, you know, um, read self-help book, they, you know, this is something that we struggle with is the, you know, how tiring it is to live multiple realities. Like we, we, we know ourselves to be one thing, but then we go out to work completely we're pretending or we're putting on a mask because it's easier or it's accepted. Um, so this idea of coming back to be, feel, think, do is, is, is merging those two all those <laughs> realities and really coming to one, one place of self. And, um, so I was, I was 23 years old and I was coming back from golfing with some friends. And at the time I was in a relationship that was, um, I would say emotionally, um, unstable, um, borderline abusive. Um, but it was all I knew. It was all I knew. I, this is how love was for me. Uh, it's how I learned love was. It looked like that. And um, 
I was deeply unhappy, but I didn't even know what happiness was. So I couldn't have compared it to anything. It, it was my life, but d- deeply inside, I knew that, um, I was doing something not right. I, I wasn't paying attention to this other part of myself that had always been there, but I would call it my feral part, like my crazy part, this voice and this knowing inside that felt like it was going to lead me down the wrong path, but it was actually my intuition. And so that night when we coming back from golfing, I had had that day intuitions about not going golfing, but I still went. Um, No offense to anyone who loves golfing, but I did not (laughs) like golfing. I was indulging. Um, you know, the, the desire of my friends and my, my, my boyfriend at the time. And he took my, um, partner at the time took a uh, left turn onto onco- into oncoming traffic and a half ton truck hit the car that I was in. And on the impact, my lungs partially collapsed and my liver lacerated in half right in between the two lobes. And I was unconscious. And when I regained consciousness, I couldn't breathe, and so I panicked, and then I went back into this dark space um, of unconsciousness, and then that's when it happened. I had a vision, and it was more than a vision because I also felt when I was seeing, and what I was seeing is what unconditional love looked like in my life. It was the life that I was meant to live, but not the one I was actually living. Now I can say it's the life that I chose before I was born, the one I knew I could and wanted to live. But I was making the wrong choices. I could see all the people that I loved and that loved me, the meaningful relationships, what I did. Um, But the feeling in my being was tremendous of this love that I had never fully experienced before. Not like that, that is for sure, but it felt more real than anything else in my life. So when I woke up the next day in the hospital, I made a promise to myself that I would change my ways, I would change my life. And I, I made a commitment um, to this to this vision, which was you know, only in retrospect can I say was who I really was. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that story for our listeners um, who may be being introduced to you for the first time. And I also really enjoyed how you split your book up into two parts. You know, I felt that you did a great job of bringing the reader through your journey. Um, You know, in part one, you have great stories. And, you know, part two, I felt like it was more of the application of the things that you have learned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when I began writing the book, um, eight years ago, (laughs) it was a lot more prescriptive. Um, my experience in academia had taught me how to write and it was a lot less pleasant to read. (laughs) Um, the, you know, the way that I learned how to write was not as fun and, 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 aesthetics I guess aesthetically pleasing and so the more I would reach out and let other people read my work what they would say that was the most powerful parts were the stories and so I decided to add a little bit more stories and more stories and eventually there were so many stories that it 
I felt had to be called a memoir. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I, I love the stories. Um, you know, you have 19 chapters in part one, so I'd love to talk about all 19. <laughs> but um, <laughs> some of my favorites were, uh, you know, really your your story and some of the, the pain and the struggle of finding Paul, you know, mm. your love. And, you know, it's like he was there and there was this knowing and then you ended up going back to the to the other person that you were with and then eventually you know having that love story of coming back to Paul was just that's just I think Mm. everybody's always rooting for the love story (laughs) um you know I I really love that and that had just some great synchronicity as well and I you know I just loved your honesty because as a reader you could really feel um the love and the pain that you were experiencing it was just I just felt like I was right there with you so Mm. um I really loved that and I I found a lot of inspiration um too in chapters 15 and 16 um and autopoetic life and the heart shape compass. And, um, you know, that's where you talk about some of your stories about meeting Deepak Chopra and Wayne Dyer. And, um, so I'd like you to go into that a little bit more because I loved, I I saw a little bit of myself and actually reading those chapters inspired me a little bit more, um, of what I'd like to do with our path, love and productions and Mm. the podcast, because when we first started this too, there, I, I was a bit naive. Like I didn't really know particularly what I was doing. You know, I'm a teacher, I'm a mental health therapist, you know, and I'm a healer on the side from what I do here. So I was just like, well, I have the skills. Let me just go ahead and do it. And, you know, I would just be reaching, reaching out to different authors, you know, here and there. And when I was reading about you bringing Deepak Chopra and you just said, okay, I'll make it happen. When they said he usually comes for a speaking engagement of a thousand or more and then you just found a way you took your credit cards and you just did it. That's my energy too. I was like, yeah, you go girl. Like I totally know what it's like to, to wing it. And then like, look, look where you are now. So that, that was just so great. So inspirational. And, um, another person that I follow is Gabby Bernstein and she mm-hmm. sometimes will challenge us to say, how are you playing it small? Mm-hmm. And, and I love how, how big you're playing it. So, oh, thank um, you, April. Thank you. I, I love that. And I relate to that energy and I think that's something that really kicked in in my 20s is to I, I would learn by doing it. Um, and I think it's okay. Like if you know, you're an entrepreneur, you're creative, that's really how to learn to really learn things is to just jump into them and do them. Um, and then, and then you can become an expert, um, way better than if you took the course (laughs) Mm -hmm. or got the certificate, you know? Um, and so that was, um, I, you know, I have to say I was inspired by my husband at the time because he was, you know, we were in our early twenties and he was, he'd ran his own restaurant, um, while he was in university and to see him just take risk and go for it and, and, um, I was, you know, was very different than my background. I grew up uh, in a blue collar family and, and everything was very measured and controlled. And, you know, we, there was specific, um, expectations and, and you didn't really go past what was comfortable. And so I learned a lot from watching him. Um, and I thought, well, if he can, if he can do this, I can do this too. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I can take these, um, these risks. And then it, every, because it's meant to be, and it's part of your path, everything opens up as you probably noticed, Absolutely. you know, the authors show up, 
the people who want to connect you with the authors show up and you continue to grow, which is so magical. Absolutely. And and I'd like you to talk about how the autopoetic ideas came about through Mm -hmm. what you were doing and what you were creating and how you shared that in the book. Yeah. So when I was doing my PhD, my favorite part of of academia was the conferences. I loved going to conferences and coming together with people and pushing the boundaries of our thinking at the time and thought was my identity. Like this is how I lived. And so, but I, I didn't like how it fell short of truly connecting. And you talked about the honesty earlier to me, that's where the magic lies is if we can be honest with the truth of our experience when we share with others we validate and inspire the people around us validate their experience because often we don't share the bad stuff because we worry about being judged but what we don't realize is that we keep others also from doing the same thing But when we do share with honesty and vulnerability, we give them permission. And that's a leadership quality, I feel, to be the first to stand up and say, this is this is my truth. And I'm going to let the chips fall where they may. But it's important for me to share it for my own healing. And I know that it will give other people the same permission. So. I wanted to create a conference where that kind of exchange happened. And I brought to um, Oceanstone, which is an, um, a kind of a retreat center by the ocean that my husband's family used to own. Um, I brought um, experts and professionals and masters in their own field of wellness and sustainability, um, creativity, um, and together for a weekend. And so that was the very first auto poetic ideas festival. Um, and after doing that for two years, um, an annual festival where we would have these amazing conversations and really grow from them, I wanted to bring in a more known figure. And that's when I reached to the He really, and I reached out to other people as well. Mama, Bill Clinton, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I, like you, I just went out and I made the calls and I, and I would get emails back and people were all very kind, but really Deepak's agent was the first one to give me the time of day. And she, you know, I wasn't a producer. I just graduated from my PhD. Um, I, um, I had a newborn. My daughter was a few months old and um but uh, you know we talked on the phone for a while and 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 she said yeah let's give five we've never been to Halifax and so I'm really um grateful um for for Gita for for doing that and it was such an amazing experience it was so easy for me and I think that's one of the things that you know we have to remember is like what we're meant to do should be fairly flowy like we have the innate skills in us. Like I used to do that when I was a kid, I would organize, you know, plays and and variety shows and I do tickets and programs. And this is something I just did as a child, like in my neighborhood. And so if we look back and see like, what were those things we just did? Like without the adults asking us to do, or, you know, having to do them, they might give us some insights on our gifts to the world. And so I just loved gathering. And, um, and so that was the beginning of the Auto Poetic Ideas Festival. And we did it for 
for seven years where we worked with, um, you know, once you are able to have Deepak in your sphere, then it's easier to call Wayne Dyer and it's easier to call Gary and say, well, I have experience now and I'd love to have you. So we've worked with, um, yeah, Anita Morjani, Greg Braden, Sirkin Robinson, um, uh, Bill Davis, the Wheat Belly author, and, um, and Wayne Dyer and, and Gabby as well. Yeah, yeah, that's that's awesome. And mm-hmm. one of the the sweet parts of that story too, which you know made me go back to my childhood, was when you were talking about as you were a young girl and how you would gather and you would set all these things up. And um, and gosh, I hadn't gone back to you know just think about well, what did I do? <laughs> and 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 I did, you know. And that that was a nice thing to remember. And I remember in high school, I ended up being like the student council president, the yearbook editor. I was always in these, you know, take charge positions. And I was like, okay, yeah, now it's making sense why I'm doing all these different things. So that was that was a fun little memory bank to open up. So I thank you for that because I haven't mm. I hadn't gone back there in a while or even put two and two together. Yeah, it validates, right? It validates this innate knowing of of what we, our gifts, our skills, what we came here with. Yeah, Yeah. of what comes natural that maybe Mm. at the time, you know, when we had less pressure, whatever the case may be, we were being more than doing. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Okay, so a couple of other directions I'd like to go in for kind of the second half of our interview is more into part two. And, um... Gosh, okay, where do I want to go with this? Uh, well, one of the things that I would agree with you and I'd like to hear you talk more about is breath work and breathing mm. and why that is so important. <laughs> um, we know it's important because we need to live, but yeah. uh, I really don't know if people really understand the power of breathing and breath work. So can you talk more about that and how that came into your journey and has helped you? Yes, we don't. We really don't understand the depths of the importance of breath. And that's just based on what we were taught. Like, it was not something that was taught to us in school, um, that a deep, conscious breath in through the nose and out through the mouth is healing or relaxing or centering this is this is not something that we were taught and on the contrary we were taught um, by osmosis most of the time by watching the adults around us that we needed to hold our breath to be able to function and be seen and be accepted and validated because the intensity of our emotions were too much for them and no blame to be placed here because they also were a result of their upbringing and there was a lot to hold your breath for you know in um the turn of uh you know the middle of the century like there's so much in our genes that tells us that it's not okay to fully breathe because if i do that and i'm relaxed i'm open and exposed to hurt Mm. And because that's what the breath, the deepening of the breath and the slowing of the breath down is it softens us and it allows our system to go into this parasympathetic state, which is an autopoetic state. It's the state of relaxation, regeneration, healing, 
creativity in the body. The opposite of that is fight or flight, where cortisol is running through and adrenaline, and we're holding our breath because that is what we did many, many times when traumatic events happened in our childhood. And trauma is on a spectrum. And so something as small as I'm about to cross the street, I'm three years old and my ball is in the street. So I go get my ball and there's a car coming. So my mom grabs my arm and yanks me out of traffic. She did the right thing. She saved me from being hit. But in that moment, the cells of our bodies register. I'm not safe. This is not a safe place. And the breath is the first thing to go in a fight or flight reaction. It just becomes more shallow or it's actually interrupted. So that would be on the smaller end of the spectrum. Or, you know, you fall and your, your, your older brother laughs and laughs and laughs. And there's the trauma. There's emotional trauma. But then it goes all the way to physical abuse and emotional abuse and sexual abuse. The breath is one of the first things to go. So that's no wonder that when we are in a stressful situation in our life right now, and therapists tell you know, therapists and psychologists and coaches tell us, like, when you are in a stressful situation, you should really deepen your breath. You should breathe deeply to find that place of calm. Well, the body doesn't want to do that. The body has been trained to protect you for a good reason. And so that's why I really wanted to have a whole chapter on breath because it's so complex, the impact of the interruption of the breath and also what it can do when we restore a full breath. So being able to feed the body where the trauma has been living and, and feeding that space with breath can restore on a quantum level. And what I mean by that is that instead of talking about the trauma and talk therapy for 10 years, in that moment, we can release a layer of that trauma with breath and attention. Yes. And in, in this chapter, you were the way that you were describing a certain breath. I had recently just taken a breath work uh, class, t learning a different breath that was almost a three-part breath, but it became very much like a cycle. And mm. there was movement to it where you did not interrupt the breath. And you would breathe in. It was an open mouth breath from the belly, mm. breathe into the heart, and then you would exhale out. So it would sound something like... <sighs> Oh. and you would keep going at like a very <laughs> quick pace. And the instructor was like, we're going to do this for a half an hour. And I'm thinking, I'm going to hyperventilate. Like, how yeah. do you do this for a half an hour? Are you kidding me? There had to be a couple times I had to, you know, just take a, a softer breath, but <laughs> it felt like my whole body was contorting. I mean, I kind of lost all sense of the physical body during this mm -hmm. and leaving that class I felt so light. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when they say that we can move toxins out through our breath, we can move, you know, obviously the energy, weight, um, the trauma, like you were talking about, um, you know, I'm still fascinated by it. But I know I walked out of there from that experience saying there really is something to deep breath work. Mm, yes. And that reminds me of the holotropic breath, what you just did. Okay. Um, that... David Simon, so the co-founder of the Chopra Center, who's passed away now, um, led us in a class through, and it was um, 
it was called the holotropic breath and it was that what I call like a fire breath. So in Huna, the breath you did like has, it's a, it's to ignite the fire inside yourself. And that is said to actually create a similar sensation to ayahuasca and which I love by the way, to be able to have a breath instead of taking a drug. <laughs> like I don't advocate that. And I know a lot of people do enjoy ayahuasca, but um, so I, you know, I, I, I relate to your experience. I, I've, I've, I've done that and it is quite freeing because you can have a tangible experience of what's, what else you, or what else or who else you are beyond the boundaries of your body. Because as you said, your, your, your face, your, your limbs, you, they were disappearing and you were tapping into, um, who you really were. Yes. Well, and that's great to know because I've interviewed a couple of people about ayahuasca and I'm like, I am way too chicken to try that. I have no interest in trying it. So I didn't know that, you know, that type of breath could elicit possibly that experience. So that's great to know too. You've already had the experience. <laughs> I yeah. did. Yes. yes. So the holotropic breath is a little different where it was uh, for 12 minutes. And then you stop instantly. And when you stopped, um, that's when you kind of traveled. Okay. Mm-hmm. Very cool. But you um, need, don't try that at home. Like, no. <laughs> you need uh, a support yes. uh, because, you know, you can tap into healing and you need someone there to, to be there for you. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I'm actually going to just take a slight right turn because I do want to talk a little bit about... Um, this is kind of going back to part one, but your shamanism journey, and I know that you are doing um, some shamanic work as well. And I feel like that that kind of ties in a little bit to what we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. And then I'd like to move more towards um, conscious uh, intention and attention to things. But um, would you like to talk a little bit about, you know, how you came into shamanism? Mm -hmm. I came into shamanism through Reiki. Um, because when I was attuned to Reiki, I had an experience of myself, almost like a download of that energy that was so palpable that I wanted to know more about this esoteric world. And I, having been so on the right, you know, on the, on the other side of, of the, that reality with academia, I think I wanted to swing the pendulum all the way back, as far back as I could, so I could kind of come back and find a middle for myself. So I went to Kauai to study with a shaman, um, Kahuna, um, and she is from a long lineage of Huna teachers. And Huna is the ancient tradition of, um, of spirituality of the Hawaiians. And she taught... Um, a branch of Huna called Lemurian Huna, where it went even back before the Hawaiians, um, you know, uh, came to the islands. It was um, Lemurians, in her opinion, and which I really resonated with. And so um, I studied with her. Um, and so one of the things she talked about is how 25, 30,000 years ago, we came from the Pleiades as star beings, the Pleiades, the, the star constellation. And we were living in this way that is very familiar to 
um, our soul connected to each other, telepathically communicating, uh, really connected to nature and the animals. And we were very etheric. And, and so there's a memory of time in our cells. And that's what she feels, and I, I absolutely agree, that this kind of way of living is coming back on Earth after we've forgotten for so many years who we really are. And when I connected with her, she attuned me to an energy, a healing energy um, from that Lemurian time. And instead of, you know, the white light from Reiki, this for me manifests as a purple light. So I had the experience of being able to work on her as well and, and feeling this tangibly in my body that, yes, I was absolutely a channel for this energy. And I came back home and I started working on people, putting my hands on them, just like a Reiki practitioner would. But eventually I realized that I wasn't just the channel of that energy, that I was that energy. And so I stopped doing it in that way. I thought, you know, when I speak and when I coach and I'm in the presence of someone, like I am that energy. I don't need to put my hands on people. My words will be uh, healing. My um, my presence will be healing. The exercises I will guide people in the workshops will be healing. So that's how Huna has really come into my practice and into the work I do with people. But lately, I started putting my hands on people again. <laughs> so it's um, it's um, I think I forgot how I needed that as an entry point um, because it was very important for me to feel that energy first in order to understand what to do with it. And sometimes, um, uh, feeling an energy uh, by someone putting their hands on you can be the way into this world, this crazy world of, mm. of, uh, of energy and, and spirituality and, and shamanism. Yes. But yeah, and thank you for saying all that too. I think that's great for all the energy workers and light workers out there that are listening to this show. Um, you know, and you know, there, I think that there is something too very healing about physical touch. Mm. Um, you know, and, and once you get to a point where you really do understand energy and you understand it, like you just described it, where we don't necessarily need to touch people because you are that energy, that healings can still occur. But I would agree with you. I do, I do love being able to touch my clients as well. Um, mm -hmm. and administer, you know, Reiki and, and different healing. However, one of my teachers once told me I was doing a medical intuition class and she said, okay, I'm going to have you guys look into each other's bodies. And most of us were Reiki practitioners in this training. And what was the first thing we all did? We went to grab and touch each other. <laughs> and then she said, okay, now that you guys are done, she's like, I want you to let go of your rules. She's like, you don't need to touch in order to see, you know? Mm. Um, but I do find that there is something, you know, also very nice about being able to have that entry point like you talked about and also just the power of touch and how healing that can be. Mm -hmm. And I, I think at some, at, on the path of a healer, this has to come this point where they really realize that they are not just a vessel for God, but they are it. So and, and or source or universe, right? And not yes. in an ego way, not in a <laughs> vanity kind of way, but in an ownership of the eternity and the universal um, isness that is you. Mm. 
and and that you don't have to give your power away to something outside of yourself. So sometimes, you know, Reiki can be something we will, I can't be or do anything if I don't have this Reiki prayer. So I love the rules, like letting go of the rules, because as a healer, we always have to shed our our concepts of the work we do and who we are, even if they are very expansive concepts, like even if we feel like I remember Deepak teaching us about this sutra, this sutra that was called, it was, um, um, what was it? It was Aham Brahmasmi and it means I am the universe. And so I thought to myself, if I hold this as an intention, like it's a really big intention, I, I think I'm good, you know, <laughs> so I've been, I've been, I've repeated this, the, the sutra for years. And, and then one, a teacher of mine said to me, like, can you even challenge that? And I was like, what? <laughs> like, so even our most expansive, huge, like really big containers of beliefs, we need to readdress on a, you know, yearly, <laughs> monthly basis. <laughs> And so when he said that, I kind of, I got a little weirded out. Like I felt almost there was no reference point for me anymore. And that brought me to a whole other space. Yeah. Hmm. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Okay. So I'd like, I'd like you to also speak about conscious attention and you, you know, in the chapter I've accidentally did not mark which chapter down this is, but I, I wrote some notes and I liked how you were talking about intention and attention and how you noted that the problem, um, is where, where we're focusing our attention unconsciously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to, um, take this segment to talk a little bit more about that. Of course. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of, noise in the spiritual world right now around intention and manifestation. So if you can just focus on your intention and bring your attention to the intentions, then you'll get what you want. And I wanted to dissect that a little bit more because every day unconsciously our attention is on our habitual thought patterns that are actually not serving us anymore. They're in the way of us manifesting what we want. So in order to get a clear sense of what we really want, there's some healing work that needs to happen. We need to clear the body, clear our energetic being of what's holding us back. And the subconscious is where all of that is is, is, is being stored. And so before intention, and maybe the intention is to start with attention. Mm. And so bringing our attention somewhere else than our mind, um, below the neck, I say. So we tend to spend most of our time in our heads and, you know, that's where everything happens. And it's even where my identity can lie. And, but that's not who I am. I'm absolutely not my thoughts. And in order to be able to access the healing, I have to bring my breath and my attention inside my energetic being. So within my heart space, within my belly, at the base of my spine, breathing deeply 
into the different spaces within my temple, my being. And then what that does is it re reminds the body of this natural state of being, which is healthy and connected and relaxed and creative. Now, that kind of work we can do on our own, but I always feel like we need someone to get it really going because the level of trust in ourselves that is needed to go there, if we've been hiding from our emotions for so long, it is, is really big. Um, and there's a chapter in my book about that, um, about that moment where I was almost tricked into this class <laughs> around breath and, and leadership and, and uh, connection to the body's innate wisdom. And I experienced this incredible healing, but it was intense. It was really intense. I needed someone there with me. Um, and so once we really are well with ourselves, like with our inner emotions and our our, our healing path. We also, by doing this work, we thin the veil between us and our higher self and our higher purpose, our highest calling. So we start to get insights and information around why we're here, why we came. And when we start to really know our purpose, then that's our intention. That's our intention. That is our intent. And then at some point, it becomes a single point focus. It is my path, moment to moment. And I don't allow other things to come in and dilute that path. So intention comes when there's clarity within, and there's healing, and there's contentment and peace and harmony. And then, so for the longest time, for me, my intention was inner peace. I didn't know fully why I was here. I didn't know my purpose. I didn't know my gifts. But I knew I wanted inner peace, almost like I knew it would give me some clarity. So that was my intention. And to do that, I needed to make sure that on a daily basis, I live from my heart. My, my actual organ, my attention would be in my heart as opposed to in my mind. And that changed everything. Mm, I love that. I also like that as you were talking, I kind of got this visual, as you were saying, of um, kind of thinning that veil to the soul. Of course, mm. I always go back to that silly onion metaphor of peeling back the layers of the I onion and you keep going, <laughs> keep going, right? But um, but when you said that, it, it's almost like, oh, yeah, that's what makes sense when so many people say, as you just said, who am I? I don't know what my purpose is. And when you were saying kind of thinning that veil, it's getting closer and closer to the true yeah. essence of the soul. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. So to not despair if you've been on the healing path for a while and you think, well, I should know this. Everybody else knows it or I shouldn't, you know, it looks like everybody else knows it. No, no, it's a process. It's really a journey. And and for me, it was, it's still unfolding, but it, it was the 10, 12, 13 year journey, but it doesn't have to take that long, but it was fun the whole way along because you try things and you engage things and then you change and adjust your compass. And it's, it's an amazing journey. I wouldn't 
change it for anything. Uh, so to be patient and to be uh, kind and generous with ourselves when we feel like we've messed up or we're missing the point and it's not working, it's supposed to be, um, you know, um, a journey of remembering and forgetting and remembering and forgetting. But every time we do that, every time we go through a healing, we get closer to that and we get veil is thinner and it becomes easier too. That's so great. Well, thank you, Anne. I have loved our conversation. Um, we're coming to a close. I'm on your website right now, and I'm really excited because I'm on your events page, and you are coming to my neck of the woods next September 2018 at Omega Institute. So I am probably <laughs> going to get to meet you in person. Oh, yes. I'm excited <laughs> for that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's um, that, that's right right by me. So um, I'd also like you to let our listeners know where they can find your information. We do put stuff in the show notes. But you definitely are. You're a busy woman, too. I mean, you have meditations on here. You have your own podcast. You have a blog. You have teaching videos. You're teaching. You have these events. You're going on a cruise. I wish I saw this beforehand in December. <laughs> um, yeah. So can you let our listeners know where they can find you online? Yes. So my website is nberube.com. So that's A-N-N-E-B-E-R-U-B-E.com. And as you said, there's a lot of content there and a lot of free content to discover the work even more um, and then opportunities to engage with me as well. And um, the book is also there. <laughs> It is. And it was one to purchase, I guess. (laughs) Yes. Purchase the book listeners. Go get it. I loved it. I know that you guys will love it too. And, Mm -hmm. uh, thanks again, Anne. This was a great interview and, you know, just you're doing great work in the world. Keep it up. I'm really excited. I hope that I get to that training in September and get Mm -hmm. to meet you in person. That would be really, really nice. Well, congratulations on your work as well, April. I really appreciated our time together today. Thank you. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that show and don't forget to sign up for our premium service with over a hundred hours of interviews, as well as our new segments, such as two minute Tuesdays, food for thought Fridays, as well as the virtual book club on Thursdays. All of these extra segments are only available for our premium subscribers. Visit the podcast section of our website at path11productions.com to learn more or to start your subscription for only $3.99 a month. If you're not interested in a premium subscription, you can still use our smartphone app for both Android and iPhones. Just search for Path 11 in the Google Play App Store, or if on an iPhone, look for Path 11 in the iOS App Store. Of course, you can still catch our latest five interview shows at any time by subscribing to the Path 11 podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, and iHeartRadio. If you want more information about our films, visit our website, path11productions.com, to purchase DVDs or to rent and stream each film. You can also find our trilogy of films on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and Gaia.com. Catch you next time.